VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Tuesday, September the 20th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program. Let's get it going. If you're in the St. John's Metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 86 26. Well, on a sports-related note, what do you know? Starting to show a bit of sports. It's, <coughs> pardon me. Oh, drop water went down the wrong way. It's National Coaches Week. So we talk a lot about the athletes and happy to give them their accolades and applause and praise for what they're achieving, whether it be on the local scene, provincial, national, international, whatever the case may be. But of course, the coaches play such a huge role in their lives. So it's one thing for a coach to be able to see to the development of a young, growing athlete, and that's an important part of it. But I think if you look at some, especially minor sports, maybe also amateur sports, it's the coach is really responsible for setting the tone for how much fun you're going to have throughout the season. Now, it's also fun to win, and there's nothing wrong with instilling those life skills of learning how to win gracefully, learning how to lose and build on your mistakes, those types of things. So it's National Coaches Week. So beyond that, there's also a real keen focus, and there really should have been more of this over the years, is to also create a safe, respectful spot for the young athlete. I mean, we've seen the stories that have come, for instance, Hockey Canada, and on that front. So you can only hope the coaches get the support they need from their uh, associations, organizations, and from the parents and families. Sometimes it's really difficult to want to volunteer as a coach because you are on the receiving end of a lot of complaints. Now, some of them are absolutely justified. Some of them really not so much. So on the front of SAFE, I know, for instance, in minor hockey, this is a nationwide program. If you want to volunteer in any capacity for a minor hockey association, you have to pass a vulnerable sector check, a criminal background check. So regardless of what you're going to do as a volunteer, like even as a member of the executive, I have to do one. But the coaches and the managers, those involved with the valuation camps and the rest of it, just that level of comfort that families really do need and the individual minor sports athletes need. So it's not only minor sports. For those of you out there playing a role as the mentor or the offering tutelage to young Canadians, and especially you coaches, National Coaching Week. All right, a couple of quickies. So 76 years ago today, 1946, the first Cannes Film Festival, of course, on the sunny seaside of Caen, France. We've had several representative uh, uh, bodies of work that were done here in this province that made their way to the screens in Cannes, which is pretty freaking cool, if you ask me. So all the genres of film, documentaries, even student films, get to apply to be seen and screened at Cannes, but today for the first time ever in 70, uh, pardon me, 1946. And over the weekend, this one kind of went by the wayside. You know my affinity for some of these today in history regarding TV and film. So September 17th, marked 50 years of the debut of MASH. I mean, MASH is certainly one of the all-time hit shows. And of course, MASH, the acronym stands for Mobile Army Surgical Hospital, set in Korea during the Korean War, and you know the deal. Not only a terrific show, but just imagine what it meant for the life of some of the actors that performed and fe were featured in MASH. So it was 50 years ago it debuted, and that was on the 17th. It ran 11 seasons, 256 episodes, ended on February 28th of 1983. And still to this day, is my understanding, still owns the record for viewership for a TV series finale. Let's go from 8 to 1. 
All in the Family, uh, in their finale, over 40 million viewers. The Cosby Show, over 44 million viewers. My God, what happened to Bill Cosby? Magnum P.I., over 50 million. Friends, 52 million. Seinfeld, 76 million. The Fugitive, I was surprised to see The Fugitive on the list. 78 million viewers. Cheers, 80 million viewers. And MASH, viewership at 105 million. 105 million people watched the final episode of MASH. Anyway, on that front, I wonder what the viewership was yesterday, in full or in part, of watching the funeral for Queen Elizabeth II, and then the three processions all the way to St. George's Cathedral, at Windsor Castle, of course. I didn't watch a whole lot of it, but I did watch some. I have to, I had, have to admit, I was kind of stressed out for the pallbearers in doing the transfer from the carriage to the hearse and then out of the hearse, because I mean, for starters, I was shocked to find out that the casket weighed 600-plus pounds. I saw someone estimate the weight at 650 pounds. So those eight ladios with their stoic faces and doing their level best not to be involved in any sort of catastrophe or to drop the casket. Anyway, 650 pounds because it's lined with lead to help slow the decaying decomposition process. Anyway, so... You know, I was told in no uncertain terms a couple times last week that it was highly inappropriate to talk about anything but the positive light that the Queen can be remembered in. When, of course, like everyone else who's got a family, there's been some family turmoil. And, of course, inheriting some of the baggage that went with the British monarchy, their empire, and the Commonwealth to this day. So you can tell me when you think it's appropriate to talk about any feature or facet of the British monarchy. Yesterday really did feel like a bit of a history lesson. Now, albeit, nothing but the very most positive and brightest spots in history. But Canada was featured quite prominently. The RCMP on their horses were out in front of one of the processions, one of three. And of course, apparently over the years, the RCMP have gifted many horses to the Queen herself. So... You know, there's a lot to talk about the monarchy. Some people are all in, some people are all out. And regardless of where you are on it, if you want to talk about it today, because now the hard work starts. The steadfast hand that Queen Elizabeth II had is going to be extremely difficult, if not impossible, to replicate by now King Charles III. So it was maybe her, as the head of state, as the queen, was able to keep the monarchy together through all the difficult times that they had to deal with over the last decades, of course, inside her 70 years on the throne. All five prime ministers, or uh, all, well, there was five prime ministers in England. Of course, that would be, let's see, start with Kim Campbell, Jean Chrétien, Paul Martin, Stephen Harper, and Prime Minister Trudeau. And of course, Prime Minister Brian Mulroney was here in the country participating in the the event in Ottawa. Anyway, so the hard work now begins, not only for King Charles, but for the country as we think about and talk about the relevance, the place of the monarchy. And it's not because I'm just bringing it up. These are widespread conversations right across the country. And this has been brewing for quite a long time. So I don't know what the future holds there, but it is going to be an extremely tough job for King Charles to do what the Queen was able to do, is to keep things together through enormous pressures and family-related matters held very much in the court of public opinion. So if you want to take it on from whatever reason or angle, we can do it. Uh, I can't really see what that says. Oh, here's a good one. This is a cute story. I used to think this was urban myth, but apparently it's absolutely true. And this regarding one of the Queen's 22 visits to Canada, and in particular, her visit to Newfoundland and Labrador and in St. John's. So the Queen and her entourage made their way to purity factories. 
And she was touring around the facility and, of course, being pointed out what they're doing here, what they're doing there. And the Queen walked up to this one fella on the line and said, what are you making? Because we're all familiar with the products that are made at Purity Factories. So the Queen says, what are you making? And the fella retort, 12.50 an hour. Not jam jams or hardtack or lemon squares or anything. What are you making 12.50 an hour? Apparently he's been tormented about that its entire life, even after he left Purity Factory. I mean, it's a terrific story, and I can only hope it's true. Okay, moving on. And if you want to talk about the monarchy, we can do it. Uh, I'm not a monarchist, but I think it's an interesting conversation. So let's talk about going back to work, like the king. So there's a tentative return to work for the workers out at Brea Renewable Fuels, of course, many people refer to as come by chance. So there's going to be an opportunity for the rank and file to ask questions, maybe get some specifics about what happened and what's been done to avoid the flash fire and explosion happening again. Some may not choose return to work period, but there's going to be the possibility to go back to work tomorrow. Now, that will probably be more in the form of the information session as opposed to active duty for all of the returning workers. So we still would like to know, and I don't want to dive into people's personal business and, you know, how are you? What's your status? Are you in the ICU? What kind of burns or suffers or injuries did you suffer? But I just wish them all well, the six that remain in hospital. We understand there's still six out of the eight that are in the hospital. So that's the return to work out there. And there's the possibility that there will be a return to work after about 11 weeks of strike in the city of Mount Pearl. You know, I'm sure it's tough on the workers. I'm sure it's tough on the city uh, councillors and city staff and management. It's also tough on the residents, and they can't be left out of this equation. Lots of services are not derailed in full, but they are reduced while this strike was ongoing. So they've struck some sort of tentative agreement. And I've heard an interview with both sides here, and that would be Mayor David Aker and Ken Turner representing the QP local. There's still a little bit of the air of animosity, to say the least. This is just my personal opinion and hearing it the way I did. So we'll have to see how they look to uh, restore some amicable relationship, because that's important. You know, it's one thing for Ray to pay and sick days and vacation, but it's the mood or the atmosphere as a worker, which also goes a long way to your productivity and your happiness. Both are important. So they've struck a tentative deal. But it hasn't yet been brought back to the members for ratification because apparently there's some sort of delay in the return to work plan. I have never been involved in these negotiations or collective bargaining, but just from my own memory, it seems that when uh, tentative agreements were struck, it also came with a return to work plan either immediately or shortly thereafter, and then very quickly turned over to the rank and file to ratify or not. The bargaining unit and the boss at, at the local is not recommending one way or the other that they take it. So, which just leads me to believe that there's still some outstanding issues. As much as both sides really needed to get the workers back on the job, the residents really need them to be back on the job, and we hope they can restore some sort of manageable workplace. But there's a lot of couching of their position and their various stances on the deal that has tentatively been struck, but you wanna take that on, we can do it. And also, I think there's still ongoing discussions in many businesses, industries, right across the country, about what returning to work actually looks like. Some people are not back in the office. They're not. Some may never be. 
a couple of buddies of mine, when March 2020 struck and they began to work at home, have never gone back to the office. Well, that's not true. I've only gone back sporadically for a meeting, some face-to-face time with their manager or supervisor or what have you. But for the vast majority of their time, they're working from home. Productivity numbers are up. They are efficient and able to pull it off. It's not for me. I don't want to work from home. I want to go to the office. But I wonder how many of you are still at home. One fellow friend of mine who's an accountant, he's been back to the office. He told me last week he's been back in there three times since March 2020. And the office is not no longer in the big office complex that they had. They've reduced their real estate footprint because people are working from home and they're able to figure it out. And then, of course, it's the issue that here comes the reopening of the House of Commons, and that's going to remain as a hybrid parliament, which doesn't sit well with a lot of folks. But anyway, let's talk about it. We have been talking about food, access to food, the price of food, and all the rest, and best before dates, expiry dates, and just general labeling. There's a group called the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch Program. They say what they do is include all the science-based evidence and then make uh, uh, suggestions or advise as to how different products could be labeled. And in this case, they're talking about labeling snow crab and lobster from this province as a food to avoid. And this information goes to consumers, business professionals, chefs, all the marketing agencies. So they're saying to avoid it. Not because of the nutritional value, not because of it's good or bad for you, but they're safe to avoid it because of the interaction between the Atlantic right whale and fishing gear. Yes, it's important to understand the plight of the Atlantic right whale. Okay. But the fact of the matter is, and it'd be nice to talk to maybe Dr. Jack Lawson or someone, about just how prominent the Atlantic right whale is in our waters, especially where they uh, fish for snow crab and lobster during those seasons. I'm told that the sightings are very rare, and there has been exactly zero entanglements between the boys' snow crab and lobster gear and the Atlantic right whale. So it's fine for the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch Program to make this sort of compilation of data and consequently make an advice on uh, labeling suggestions, but... It's got to be based in fact. So the FFAW is pushing back. The provincial government is joining forces with the FFAW to push back because if it's not based in reality, then this is unnecessary harm to a couple of really key products coming out of our water. We know what it's like for ground fish, and we know what the savior for, I guess, profitability for the harvesting and processing sector has been lobster, shrimp, and snow crab. But this label just doesn't make any sense. If we've had zero entanglements, then what are we protecting with this unfortunate or totally unfounded result coming from that particular group? I don't know. I don't get it. So let's stick with the price of food for a second. You know, cost of living, I think, and there's uh, numbers coming today on inflation, and we'll maybe see another move by the Bank of Canada. And we know that the federal government last week of their announcement about a a bump on the GST and a dental program, which doesn't really do much for this province because we have it in place, and then a uh, Canada housing benefit number. You know, people say, well, it's just going to contribute to inflation. More money in the hands of folks uh, looking for goods which are in high demand. And that's, that's fine. But I wonder how does government even approach these things? I don't know what the right play is. But when you have a GDP of about $1.6 trillion American and talk about the injection of $3 billion, I don't know how much of an impact it will have on inflation. But how do you help folks with cost of living issues? Even if we're just talking about food. So... The Sobeys CEO last week, I can't remember exactly what he said, but in essence was he was fed up. Fed up. 
with people daring to talk about the profitability of Sobeys as a national franchise while people are struggling. Well, you know what, Mr. CEO? Too bad about you. Seriously, too bad about you. Profit's not a bad word. And the margins are pretty thin in the grocery business. But, you know, talk about entitled, the high and mighty, the muckety-mucks, telling me they're fed up with us plebes talking about, dare to talk about the price in the grocery store. It's extraordinary. So, yes, we know farmers have seen a big bump in the cost of fuel and feed and fertilizer. And we do know that the complication, especially for us, with the price of diesel to truck the product around. But the price of diesel is actually down under two bucks now, which is still expensive, I get it, but it's down some 20% since March. So does that mean, whatever the implication was about the cost of diesel, does that mean we'll see that price erode to the same tune in the grocery store? Not likely. So while it might be frustrating, sitting in a boardroom, looking at the massive numbers, when people are willing and wanting, and rightfully so, to wonder aloud, how dare we, wonder aloud about profits at the grocery store while people are making some very difficult choices about how to eat, what to eat, when to eat. So I was kind of put off with that, but I mean, I suppose I'm easily put off with people like that getting on the way they do. All right, let's talk about big money. So I see this story floating around, not very well received in many corners. And we know the key, if you are an oil and gas industry watcher, the key is ongoing exploration, for every reason imaginable. So there are programs with the Offshore Exploration Initiative. You know, if you go to bid on a parcel of land through the CNLOPB land sale, you have to make a deposit of some 25% of the commitment to exploring. And then there's also some supports for the oil and gas companies regarding exploration and the drilling of wells. Okay, so if you drill your first well, regardless of the status, you do not get any reimbursement from the province. But there's great possibility on the Jean d'Arc Basin and Flemish Pass. We all know it to be true. In the drilling of your second well, they can indeed receive uh, reimbursement of a maximum of $30 million. Now we're talking about ExxonMobil because this is the one that's in this particular uh, third frontier exploration story. So up to 30 million for the second well, up to 50 million for the third well. Now, it doesn't mean they're ever going to go on to produce. And I know and I understand that exploration is key, but many people are simply not that thrilled with that type of money being reimbursed to these companies. For context, this was an announcement coming from ExxonMobil themselves at the end of the second quarter of 2022. They estimated a second quarter 2022 earnings of $17.9 billion, or a bump in $4.20 per share assumed dilution. So pretty favorable stuff. The, they st- sold a bunch of assets, including Barnett Shale Upstream. Okay, fine. But capital and exploration expenditures were $4.6 billion in the second quarter, $9.5 billion for the first half of 2022, and we're giving the money back. Do we really need to dangle that type of expensive gold-plated carrot for them to come to a place where the oil does indeed, even though this doesn't count downstream, very low emissions compared to the rest of the country and the international product? So are these things we need to do or or should we be doing? Anyway, I'll just put that out there because I know some people were talking about it. All right, how are we doing on the phone there, David? Let's get a a nice positive one before we get to the break and your calls. Congratulations to four Memorial University first-year students who have been awarded the Schulich Leaders Scholarship. And those are for students that are studying STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. 
prestigious and very valuable. The students, Norman Chen from St. John's, Samantha Morgan from Colliers, Isaac Buckingham at Cornerbrook, they were each awarded $100,000 scholarships. Wow. Jason Matthews from Pasadena received $80,000. So it's not just about how well they do in school with their marks. Like, for instance, Mr. Chen had a 99% average in high school. But it's the extracurriculars, too, that add into the well-rounded person. And this guy's a good swimmer and a chess player, even on the national level. But it stands to, uh, for all four recipients that it wasn't just how smart they were, how well they did in school. was their extracurriculars as athletes or chess players, grandmasters, or what have you. So congratulations to all four. That's a real boost to your school and career. So 1,400 students from across the country were nominated for the awards. Only 100 were finalists, or pardon me, only 100 people received these lucrative scholarships uh, to attend one of the 20 partner universities, but four from here. Terrific stuff. We're on Twitter. Not so terrific. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, we're speaking with you on a topic of your choosing. Do not go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the Mayor Trapassi. That's Rita Pennell. Mayor Pennell, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Teddy. Morning to you. How are you today? Great today, thanks. How about yourself? Oh, I'm doing good. Good. We want, I wanted to talk about the breakwater, like 10 days now and still nothing done. Uh, our member, uh, Lyola O'Driscoll, has an email or text, I don't know which, into Minister Lodwell. So we are hoping they'll be in the town today or tomorrow to see the damage. Because the pictures don't do justice to the damage. You have to walk the site to really see that. So my understanding, Mayor Pennell, is that even some of the damage suffered back in 2017 hadn't been fully repaired. Is that accurate? No, the damage from Larry, Hurricane Larry, that was the 11th of September last year, just a year between the two. And we had some money cut out for that. But, uh, like, now now we really need the provincial and the federal government to offer. They have offered to assist us. But we need to forget about it dynamic engineering and ask the province and the federals for their direction on this damage. We need a new tender because the scope of work uh, is different now. The whole seawall is gone. So the money for Hurricane Larry is uh, you can't do what is not there to be done. There's nothing left of the scope of work for Hurricane Larry. Uh, the first thing needs to be done, Dander Paddy, is like we had all this sea truck come in across the road, four and five feet on the road, and in onto the harbour side. So we need that put back. Like we have a road there now, but there's about five or six feet of rock on on one side that was on the road, not on not high on the harbour beach, we'll say. So that needs to go back before you can do anything, like. Some of these rocks, uh, like, that's what's going to save our road after. Now, our water line goes down there on that road, too, and under the road, and the power lines. Uh, I mean, Fox now was given out for another storm, so we really need an emergency planning place for an evacuation for this weekend if, uh, if that storm comes. So... I don't know. Uh, we really need the minister. Now, they all have called, like even the premier and and uh, my, uh, Dan Michelson from uh, the Department of Transportation. But uh, 
we need uh, them to see it. To really need that, we need a new tender, and uh, and we need the whole breakwater done. And you need privilege and everything there to uh, to make it work. It's no going to spend a million dollars now and a million next year and a million the next year because they're at it every year. They does one spot. So we uh, we can't let some engineering company come in here and have off seconds for a test job. Mayor Pennell, I'm trying to picture exactly where the breakwater is in proximity to the road. Is there any space to actually move the breakwater further away from the ocean? No, no. There's not. It's pretty tight there. I, I'm trying to picture just how close that breakwater is to the road. Okay, the road so... It's right through. Like, the breakwater is about only a few feet from it. Yeah, okay. And the ocean is on one side... And the harbors on the other. Yes, that's right. So that's, you know, that's in the long term for tender repairs and hopefully done properly and reinforced to put up what are more serious storm surges. But now I don't know what Hurricane Fiona is going to look like. I know that it battered poor Puerto Rico and it might hit the west coast of the island Friday into Saturday. We don't know and it's too early to tell. But there's inevitably going to be another storm and a storm surge before that is fully repaired. What's the plan in the community to deal with it? Because if the breakwater is not repaired, then there's nothing anyone could do but to see what the aftermath looks like. So what's the plan? The plan is, like, we want the uh, provincial and the federal government to have a look at it. And uh, we want them to, uh, like, I know, they need to see it and walk it to really see what needs to be done. And then we need uh, their direction on it, right? Okay, fair enough. Because we need, in 2017 or 2018, I'm not sure, uh, but it is four or five years ago, we had an engineering company looked at it then, and uh, they said at that time, to do it right, it would be $4 million. And ever since that, we'll have them parked go every year. They come in and they patch it in one spot and then another spot. And it's not doing the job. So we need it done right. Where does the money come from? The money comes from the government. Yeah, but does it come from, like, through small craft harbours, or is there another pot of money for things like uh, breakwaters? They, they had, uh, years ago, the federal government uh, owned that breakwater, or did it, right? And they owned that because they have three sites on the other side of that road. And then they passed it over to the provincial government, and the provincial government passed it over to the municipal. I mean, we are a small town. We don't have any uh, tax base really here. So, but they said the money wasn't a problem. So, but we just need to have it done right instead of just patch, patch, patch. I appreciate the time and the concern this morning, uh, Mayor Pennell. Thank you for calling. And thank you. Take good care. Right, bye. Bye-bye. I don't know. Uh, does that money come from uh, DFO or Public Safety Canada or Small Craft Harbors or one or the other? I don't know, but it's an interesting question because some, some of those pots of money are, are there. 
and they're fueled and financed and ready to go. Some of them can be fairly nimble. Now, that's not a word we generally associate with the machinations of government, but, you know, the repairs are important. If The breakwaters are there for a reason. And, of course, here we are in the storm season, so there's not going to be any infrastructure repairs done in Trapassi or anywhere else before the end of September. So I wonder what that looks like. And I, and I don't know what the implications are of Fiona. I don't think I brought it up off the top of the show because it's a few days away, too early to tell, so say the meteorologists about what it might mean. But I do wonder how people read the news or hear those types of news stories when it comes to just even the most fundamental approach to emergency planning in your own home. You know, you don't really need to go hog wild with, like so many people do, you know, the panic purchasing and the hoarding and stuff that goes on, which I guess I get the worry, even though some people purchase for... You know, what might be 30 days of being put out or put off. But uh, anyway, how you hear those stories or read those stories, we can talk about right after this break. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Let us go. Line number two. Tom, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning. I want to start by just having a quick comment on the pundits and people who are talking about the inflationary effects of giving the HST and the Canada Housing Benefit and the dental to uh, poorer people. If Newfoundland got their share, which is 1.4% of the $3 billion, it'd be $42 million one time in flux. Since 2020, we the province alone gave its uh, its our public servants, uh, $120 million extra. This year, they'll make $120 million more than they did in 2020. So I think there's a lot of hypocrisy, and people need to reflect on uh, who really needs a lot of this money. And so I just want to make that quick comment. Well, I mean, where I, and I don't pretend to be the master of monetary policy, but uh, we're in a real knee-jerk world, right? So the whole bit about, and I even saw chief economists at banks saying these things, that uh, it's going to further exacerbate the inflationary problem. Really? A one-time bump in the GST is going to impact inflation to that level? I mean, they're anticipating through Bloomberg anyway that inflation will be down 7.3 from 7.6. But I guess we'll wait for the formal announcement. But if we're talking about all the contributing factors to inflation, which politicians are very honest about either and the national gdp in the neighborhood of 1.6 or 7 trillion dollars american the injection of 3 billion dollars is if someone's telling me that's going to make inflation measurably worse then boy i don't buy it no and, and again it it's it's more the hypocrisy it you know giving people more money uh definitely will feed inflation there's no debate however nobody seems to want to talk about the feds gave a 5% raise that's probably I don't know, $10 billion extra every year. I mean, all the municipalities, everybody is giving all their government workers raises, and nobody wants to talk about what the impact of giving, you know, someone two or $3,000 a year extra, which is, or more, depending on what your pay raise, is, pay scale is. So, you know, again, it, it's an important conversation to be had. However, th- those same economists at the banks or at, in, at media, wherever else, how much of a raise have they gotten? And, and are they being hypocritical? I would bet they are. Anyway, I'll leave that right where it belongs. Um, I want to talk about the holiday yesterday, and and like you, I have a great deal of respect for the late Queen Elizabeth. Um, incredible human, and and should be admired. And um, but I, I just want to kind of play out the conversation or how that decision got made. In my mind, the pre- prime minister calls the premier and says, "Hey, we're going to do this." 
And the premier says, yeah, sure, Justin, let's make it happen. And boom, it happens. And and I just asked myself, was there ever a question asked um, in that when initial decisions was made, was healthcare impacted or was that a reaction? I was, oh, we can't, uh, you know, was it initially all government workers were going to be off? And then, and then, oh, wait, wait, we can't do that. That's going to look really bad. I mean, I'd like to see how that played out. And then the next question is, how much did they think it was going to cost? Because, you know, everybody seems to think, oh, it's a holiday. It's not the end of the world. Employees would have got paid anyway. Well, what probably a lot of people aren't, don't realize is that for those who work seven days a week, and there are a lot of employees in that category, uh, in particular healthcare, we have 19,000 public servants that work in healthcare to keep all of us as healthy and look after our long-term care homes and everything else that they do. I'm sure not all of them worked yesterday, but regardless of whether they didn't or did or they didn't, if they work seven days a week, yesterday would count as a paid holiday, and therefore it would count as if they worked, well, they'd get paid, depending on their situation, time and a half for everybody who worked yesterday. Um, anybody who didn't work got eight hours. So that then potentially puts them into overtime. If yesterday was an overtime day for them, they got double time and a half. So the same thing happens with Truth and Reconciliation Day, St. George's Day, all these things. So, so there's a lot of overtime that got incurred yesterday. I mean, I would say conservatively three, four million dollars extra was paid out yesterday by the provincial government. And that decision was made very, very easily, apparently, uh, very quickly. And I would question whether there was very much consultation with the Department of Finance on whether or not what it would cost. And I think, you know, the other thing which is just as important is, you know, is, is why do we do it? I mean, according to Leger, who did a poll, 77% of Canadians feel there's, they have no attachment to the monarchy. I mean, we have to look at what's the impact on schools. I mean, when you look across the country, um, 30% of the pro- of the prov- of the population actually had a holiday yesterday. Seventy percent didn't, because Ontario, Quebec, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Northwest Territories, they didn't take yesterday as a holiday at all. Manitoba kept their schools open, so we just went through COVID, two and a half years learning loss for our students. I mean, everybody just came back from summer break. Um, they had a ho- you know, obviously Labor Day was a holiday. Truth and Reconciliation Day is on the 30th. It's a holiday. I talked to another student. They said, well, they got a PD day next week. So basically every week of the month of September, they're going to have four-day weeks. Um, universities were closed. I mean, what, what, you know, does anybody ask the question, like, do our students really need to learn? Like, we just had two and a half years of lost learning. Now, we don't know what the fall and the winter, you know, is going to give us. You know, we don't know what's going to happen health-wise. You know, and, you know, and, and, you know, I just think about like, like, where are we? Like, you know, when you look at the PERT report, which, you know, a lot of people want to not talk about, but we, you know, they said, they said pretty simply that after years of deficit, a culture exists within the public sector, including crowd owned entities, that budgets are notional and deficits do not matter and that that needs to change, you know, and. And I just think of how, like, like we're exper- we are experiencing increased spending on all levels. Our revenues are going down, um, and as the world transitions away from oil, they're going to continue to go down. Our oil fields are becoming less productive every month, and we can make decisions like that. And you know, and not just to throw bricks at the premier and at the people in that office. Where's the opposition? Why did they not bring this up? Like, who really runs this country and this province, and who is afraid of who? Like, is it because it's a public holiday? Nobody wanted to say, well, maybe this is not a good idea? Like, like where's where's the independence? Where's Dave Brazel? Where's anybody, you know, questioning, you know, what's the impacts of this? And and it just, it's, you know, anyway, it kills me. I just don't understand how this conversation never happened. We just had a whole week. 
it was declared haphazardly. Nobody said, wait a second, what's the impacts? Everybody said, oh, great, it's another holiday for a very select few of pe- people. Well, you heard it from uh, business organizations and you heard it from various banks when they talked about the GDP implications and small business and their implications as many of them are still trying to rebound in full from the impact of the pandemic. So, I mean, I heard from certain corners. Political voices, I don't know if they just, you know, wet their fingers, stick it out, see which way the wind is blowing before they comment. That's usually how they operate. So, I think they maybe overestimated the numbers of Canadians that were actually interested enough for legitimate reasons to actually want to watch and participate in the day and morning versus just we're happy to have a long weekend. I think that was a miscalculation by a variety of folks. Uh, the one place where I don't really quite get it, look, if the federal government wants to bestow another holiday amongst the federal employees, but don't extend it to the federally regulated industry, and the province wants to follow suit with provincial government employees, for me, it was just an unnecessary mistake to close the schools. I mean, I've been talking about that for as long as I can remember now, about lost learning and preparation for the next grade level, and the number of snow days and storm days and PD days and movie days and all the rest of it, which is all part of school, but when we don't have to close a school, then we probably shouldn't close a school. So that's the one place where I thought, this is pretty unnecessary. And it wasn't about the money. I'm more focusing on what it means for getting off to a good start at the beginning of the school year versus a stunted start as we are now experiencing. So how many people who had the holiday were actually personally invested in wanting to sit and watch and for whatever affinity they have for the monarchy or the queen herself? I don't know. It's not for me to say what individual people think and feel on their holidays, but I don't know. There was very little calculation given but of course you're only given a tight window of opportunity to make any type of deliberation or determination on whether or not there's going to be a holiday. I mean, once the news came of her passing, there was only going to be maximum 10 days for between that and the funeral. And so if people are even going to prepare for a holiday, then there was only going to be, in essence, five, six, seven days available maximum to make a decision. And in this case, I think it was five days. But uh, anywho, uh, anything else you want to add, Tom, before I get off to the break? Well, one interesting thing that came out there last a couple weeks ago is public administration in Canada grew 9.4%. Now, you can look at it in some places it's 70%, some places it's 14%, but it seems like it's 9.4%. 86.7% of all these magical jobs that everybody trumpets, including the politicians, were actually in the public sector. It's public sector growth. And what's worse, self-employment is down 7.4%. So what's happening in this weird Alice in Wonderland world that that everybody's living in, where it doesn't matter if you close school, it doesn't matter how much money you spend, is that self-employed people are moving into the public sector because they don't want the risk. They want the guaranteed money. They see which way the wind is blowing. Because the the private sector, the the self-employed people realize that it's going where it's going, and it's going quickly. So they're jumping into the life raft. It seems like, apparently, that's the safest place to be. So, you know, everybody... All these things matter. We need to think about it, and we need to act. Appreciate the time. Thanks, Tom. Bye-bye. And the last job job report was uh, some 40,000 jobs shed. Not really unforeseen. I think if you look at historical job numbers uh, for September, there's usually very limited growth, if any, because a lot of what would have been jobs held by people that return to university or high school are gone by the wayside. Many of those were part-time jobs, but he's right. I don't. I can't remember the number he used, but I thought I read that 40% of the new jobs in the last 18 months have been in the public sector. 
we need people working in the public sector, but a, caref a careful calculation about how, why, where, the need for the productivity and efficiency, I'm not so sure we do a very careful cost-benefit analysis. And this is not about me begrudging people a raise that they can manage to negotiate one with their employer, in this case, the provincial or federal governments, or the municipal government, as they just had in Mount Pearl. But anyway, uh, we can take it on. And look, someone just, I just saw uh, floating in the corner of my screen there about why would I, you know, want to look down on the fact there's a holiday for people in the school system? It's not about looking down. It's about asking the question as to why that was the determination. We've had a lot of serious conversation and reports done about what learning loss looks like. We don't know what the storm season will look like. We don't know what the winter snowstorm season will look like. With all of those unknowns and some of the closures that people get quite cross with, like professional development days, I think they still call them PD days, and other days that will inevitably be lost, I would have started with that. You know, there's always got to be a concern about economic implications and small businesses left to their own devices, close or don't. But in school, if we know between hybrid sessions and learning from home and the concept of learning loss, which is very, very real, that would have been the one place I started. I would start to even consider whether or not it's a good idea. I don't care if you had a day off. Fine by me. But that, those considerations, I know the, time the timeline was really quite tight, but it still doesn't mean that we have an opportunity to avoid any of these conversations because they're real and they have actual real life impacts let's take a break when we come back we're speaking with you don't go away and welcome back let's go to line number two ted you're on the air good morning sir good morning to you uh <coughs> excuse me yeah look uh paddy is it yes oh yeah paddy ted uh, i uh it's been quite a while i uh i i i just uh i've said no i got to give you a call and i'm not sure if anybody else have commented on the changes to the uh, federal riding of Avalon. Uh, I attended the, uh, that meeting there last week in the, uh, at the hotel there in Bay Roberts. We used to call it the Klondike. I think they call it the Bay Roberts Hotel now, right? A little bit late getting there. And uh, uh, the Honorable uh, uh, Judge Hans uh, Bauer there was commissioner, right? And, uh, but I went there to sit back and listen because, you know, just so many times now that there have been changes in this riding, there have been quite a few, we spoke on this years ago, first was Monte Vista, Trinity Conception, then was Avalon, but now, um, and I listened, just sat back and listened, never said a word, listened to like uh, Ken McDonald, our MP there, making his presentation, uh, Mayor Mayor Coombs, uh, Herbert Grace, uh, uh, Councillor O'Grady, I think it was, and the uh, and the commissioners there with the with the uh, with the honourable judge, uh, uh, Dr. Tilly, I think it was, and uh, I think it was Dr. Pittner. But anyway, Dr. Uh, Pittner, yeah, would it be? Yeah, Dr. Pittner, and it was it was nice after certainly to have a chat with, uh, especially with George Power, because uh, my God, it must be about 50 years since I've heard his name. Uh, probably last time I heard, I think he was a young MP there from I think it was Corner Book or Umber St. George, I think. But anyway, listen to it. But I didn't. I should have picked up. They had like a brochure there, a map of, of the riding. But what I gathered out of this now, and I stand to be corrected, sir. Uh, I think. It's not edged in stone. What they're doing now, you're taking the, uh, like the Avalon district, and then so much of it is going to stay under, say, uh, Ken McDonald. But the new district, if I gathered 
if I got my thoughts, uh, thoughts straight there, uh, was going to be called Terra Nova because uh, there was a representative there from uh, Clifford Small, was it? Probably the uh, federal member there was there uh, as well. So what you're going to have now, and now there don't seem to be much backlash on it, but you'll have the Avalon, but the uh, tradition part of it, you would have places like, I think, Spaniards Bay, Island Cove, uh, Bishop Cove, Carbonair, and the North Shore will be coming under a district called Terra Nova. Now, as I thought it was going to be under Bjorn, and I stand to be corrected on this. Okay, so what's the concern, though, Ted? Well, there's no, there's no great concern. It's just that there's going to be two districts. But traditionally, all that area has been under the Avalon. Yeah. Well, this is not a new thing, this redistribution process that they go through. Uh, we actually had Judge Fowler on this program to talk about the role of the commissions, the public hearings, uh, what outcomes may look like, why they do what they do. You know, in certain parts of the world, it's straight-up gerrymandering. It's the party in power will put forward a redistribution map that suits their voting hopes and their hopes for to be elected and have power. In this country, it really does seem like, and I, I can give people the website so they can have a look at it for themselves, but this is much much more about population and, and voting, uh, not only age and population, but how many people have voted historically over the last number of general elections federally. So it's a pretty fundamental process. Judge Farr was pretty good, actually, on this program. The website is a bit of a strange one. So I can share it if someone, someone sends me an email. But if you just Google up redistribution federal electoral dis- districts, you'll come to it. And it, it shows you everything, how to participate, what the process looks like, why they do it. So, and there's a map there as well. Okay, okay, yeah, I get you. Well, like, uh, like I said, but, uh, you know, Patty, you know, in some of these areas, I'm not going too much, like, especially voting time, like, you know, so you've got people that are uh, traditionally voting, they figure this under their district, like, you know, like the uh, Bishop's Cove, I don't over these places. But I've been under the Bonifacio Trinity Conception writing, I call it, but since then, the Avalon, right? And... You know, they look at it from a tradition point of view, too, right? But you've got to realize, uh, it seems like every three or four years, you know, the, uh, they're making changes to this area. And, I mean, uh, like uh, Mayor Coombs and, and, uh, and these other people that I mentioned, they put on a strong fight there. I thought they did, anyway, to try to keep this... Uh, their towns and that within the Avalon district. And what was the argument they were making for that? Oh well, a lot of it was sort of a sort of sort of was. I got they got mixed up a bit there with municipal and everything. But my argument would be this: now there's tradition. That's one of my that's one of my my strengths. It doesn't affect me because I'm here on Roach's line, right? And so that will still be part of the Avalon. It's only a few years ago, once, not that many years ago, one side of the Roach's line was under St. John's East and the other side of the road was under, on, under another riding. Yep. You know, I mean, but it's fine, but I mean, if Mayor Coombs and these people there, I would just sit there to learn, okay? Not to talk, but to learn. And I, uh, you know, I've seen quite a few changes in my lifetime, especially in this federal riding. And I... Uh, I, but, you know, I think the majority of people in this riding, which must be by the, by the large vote that Mr. McDonald got in the large election, they must be certainly pleased with his representation. But anyway, 
I'll let the mayors and the councillors and other people put up their fight, and then the final decision certainly is up to Judge Bauer and the Commission. You mentioned about websites and stuff like that, Paddy. I'm not into that, right? Well, uh, I only offer it as a, a place for people to go because the maps are pretty important if you're looking at where your district is and what's included in your federal uh, it's federal riding is what I always call it. Uh, and this is, of course, not a unique to this province exercise. This is happening right across the country, and it always happens at the exact same time right across the country. I mean, we've heard uh, federal riding's names changes and their geographical footprint has changed. It's never been really very drastic, but... But uh, I'll have a look at the new map that they probably have on as- associated with Avalon, for instance, in this case. But you're right, it happens all the time. I don't know how many people are worried about what their district or their federal riding is called and how many communities are caught by that riding, but maybe it's a massive concern to some, and they're, hap- they're welcome enough to call this program to talk about it. I think, uh, I think uh, it is a matter of concern because I think the uh, Honorable Judge there, I think he pointed out or something, I think I saw it in the uh, paper, the shoreline, that he was quite impressed with the amount of people, you know, wasn't he, that turned out to this particular meeting in the Klondike. Apparently, they haven't been getting very very many in the other districts, right? Well, they generally don't. Isn't that always the way, Ted? People want to be heard. They want to have their say, but then there's a town hall or a presentation or a public hearing where they live, and they don't go. <laughs> well, it was great to see. That's good. I'm glad there was a good crowd there. No, I, enjoy, I enjoyed it because I hadn't been involved much in the last, like, you know, last year or so, right? And uh, one of these days now, when, they, when things get going good, I get a... I was wondering before I go, did you attend that parade in St. John's for uh, Sir Newhook? I sure did. Good for you. Yeah, it was terrific. It was a great day. Yeah, I'm looking forward now before I go, uh, and uh, I'm looking forward now to uh, watching uh, the next, or like I get the American games, you know, with New Jersey. So I'm certainly looking forward now to seeing uh, our own <laughs> Dawson Mercer. Yeah, me too. Nice young fellow. Actually, I was speaking with Dawson uh, at the parade that day. Yeah, well, I'm glad to hear that. He is one. He is. Uh, he is a fantastic uh, uh, young man. You know what I mean. Uh, he's very well liked, very well respected, not only here in Conception Bay North, but I understand now even in the uh, in New Jersey. Right? I follow along with a couple of the uh, hockey writers uh, in Jersey. The crowd love him. The team loves him. He was the only guy in the New Jersey Devils that played at every one of the 82 regular season games last year, which is wild for a rookie. That's so, great. terrific for him. And he's really well spoken and very mature. He's got a really bright future ahead of him. I did follow his uh, brother Riley in the uh, rookie camp that went on. Of course, they he was playing for Montreal he started the first game that all these rookie teams went to Buffalo and his first game was against Dawson's Devils which yeah, is one of the boys brought that up to, uh, to brought that to my attention in the morning I usually go down probably around 5 6 o'clock for a coffee about uh, young Riley but just before I go yeah. one question sure Patrick Kane is he going to be a help to the Leafs yes I think so too well, I mean he's a terrific player he I know like most guys he does come with some Fairly heavy baggage, but probably the, one of the very best stick handlers and goal scorers in the league. Still exciting player. He's still got he's, life in those yeah, legs. He's, he's, yeah, he's good. All right. Anyway, uh, anyway, things look – anyway, how quick the summer goes, how quick the spring has gone. Now, right back now, of course, I'm enjoying the uh, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the American football. I follow that, right? I'm not into baseball. But I look forward sometimes to having a chat with you, sir, on the when the hockey gets going. Look forward to it. Yeah, no problem. And we're still we're still only talking about Patrick Kane and a rumor, right? There's been no move made, has there? Oh, 
oh, oh I, my apologies here, Mr. Daly. I thought it was a, I thought that he was picked up by the Leafs. I th- last I heard, it was still just part of the rumor mill, but it could have changed in the last couple of days. Sometimes on the weekend, for my own well-being, I kind of give news a bit of a break. But last I heard, they were simply just talking about the possibility of uh, Kane. Uh, to the Leafs, I've read some of the guys in Toronto saying it would be a complete disaster. I don't know why they say that. I mean, Kane's been amongst the league top scorers for a long time. Anyway. Once again, you were after lightning my head up here this morning, Mr. Daly. I th- honest to God, I thought for sure that Kane was gone to the Leafs. Good for you. If, it, if that's the case, then I'm happy to be set straight too, Ted. No sweat there, buddy. Appreciate the time and the call. Thank you, sir. All the very best. Okay, bye-bye. All right, uh, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, the topic, well, that's up to you. Don't go away. Join Brian Medore weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Pat, you're on the air. Uh, hi, Patty. Uh, I was hoping to get a hold of you for two or three minutes, and I was busy. Uh, Patty, you, uh, I believe it was the weekend, maybe it's the weekend before that one, but remember the hospital and not, not enough nurses, everything else, so don't go to the emergency ward on this. You know, an emergency emergency. That's right. You're, okay. So. Let me give you something. Because, uh, as we all know, family doctors are, out, are not out there, not easy to get, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, where's the person is supposed to go? For me, for me, I ended up a few days before that alert, uh, woke up in the morning and accidentally rolled over and jabbed my elbow into the corner of a mirror that's above, above the... Uh, the you know where you store your socks and your pajamas and everything, and so anyway, I needed at least a stitch or two in it. So where do I go? What do I do? I don't have a family doctor in St. John's itself, so go over the walk-in clinic. It's nine thirty in the morning. Walk-in clinic doesn't open till twelve, so there's no one even there. So that's out of the question. Walk into the collaborative clinic, and they actually actually have the gall to look at me and say, "Are you a clinic? Are you a client here?" And I say, "No." And she says, "Well, get out, double hockey stick, out." What? And I'm saying, Someone... and I'm saying, ma'am, I need I need medical attention." And she said, "You're not a client here. Get out." But why would that be gall? I mean, if if people didn't have patient rosters, then the free-for-all would be even more chaotic than what we have today, wouldn't it? Oh, uh, I guess, Patty, but I mean, for someone, I mean, I'm back in my day, if you needed medical uh, attention, it mightn't even be your own family doctor. You just went to uh, the clinic, and I mean, you needed stitches or you needed to be sent on to, in my case, you don't need, you know, you're not having a heart attack, you don't need nothing that an ambulance is going to send you on somewhere. Uh, but you do need a medical attention. I mean, like years ago, I, when young, in teens, cut your foot or whatever, I remember going into uh, a Dr. Crosby, and I was registered, you know, another doctor down the Bay Fighters. And he, he just, you know, 
even the, even the head of the clients that are there. Yeah, you need stitches. You need it now. We'll take you in, stitch you up, send you back on your way, on your way. So I would expect someone. So anyway, that wasn't the point of it. Point of of nowhere. So come home, call the emergency nine one one. And I say, look, where do I go? I don't want to tie up. I'm I'm, I'm res- res- respectable. I said, I'm not wanting to tie up the hospital system. But where in the hell do I go? I'd like to know if anyone else has encountered that this week, that week or has encountered it since. The response that I got was a little outstanding, Patty. Uh, the 911 operator said, well, look, you know, emergencies, emergencies come first. There's a car accident. If there's uh, someone with a heart attack, it could be an hour or more before we get to you. But she said, she said, what will happen, she said, is paramedic is coming over. She can't do stitches, stitches. Hopefully this can be solved with a zipper stitch and some glue and whatever. She said, we have a paramedic over. Tell her, no, actually, she does it. You do not need to go to the hospital. Stress it. You do not need to go to the hospital. But she will take care of you there on site. And I said, the shows are charged for an ambulance to come to you. She said, don't worry about that. That's why this is what we need to do to get you taken care of right now without you coming, having to come here. Well, I mean, I just recently, through signing up with Patient Connect NL, just, well, just last week was the first time I had an appointment with a family doctor in a long, 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 long time. So I just managed to be part of those collaborative care clinics. I know in the exact same building there is a walk-in clinic, and I'm talking about the one on Monday Pond Road. And to answer yeah, your question yeah. about how many people had a similar experience, I would imagine a lot of people. I mean, it's not just that one weekend here, the oh, long no, weekend. I don't, I, I don't mean the collaborative <laughs> clinic, Patty. I mean... Is that the way that we're going to be using our paramedics now in between calls to respond to and the paramedic come at no cost and the paramedic uh, no. and they're not. take care of you? Yeah, and that's, they're not doing that's, that. That, that. That's my, my, and that's what I'd like to know. If it's just happened to anybody else recently that a parent, that you have to call the 911 and the 911 looks at you and you say, oh, well, we don't come. We're in double emergency right now at the health science. We... Uh, whatever double capacity or whatever the term is but we'll send paramedic out no cost to you blah 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 and we'll take care of it is that how often is that occurring now i'd like to know and is that going to be the new normal i found that incredible we'll see how people react i appreciate the time pat so did you get any help after all did you get any uh, help after all and who gave it to you? That's what I mean. The paramedics came. Paramedics came uh, within. Oh, they did come. Not and even d- like an hour and a half. Came within an hour and fifteen right. minutes. She she said uh, she said at the door. She said, "No, but we realize I cannot give stitches." Uh, she said, "I'm not licensed to give stitches. I could get in trouble." I said, "No, no, uh, no. Totally understand. That was made 100 percent clear." She said, "I'll put a butterfly stitch on this, this, and some glue. Hopefully, it stays together." It did. She done an excellent job. But, but yeah, they were there within you know okay. 20 minutes, 25 minutes. So it was it, it was amazing that that's the people who had to come and do it. I'm just shocked. Appreciate anyway, the time, Pat. Bye. Thanks a lot. Okay, bye-bye. I would imagine, uh, well, a couple of things. 
we throw all the healthcare professionals into the conversation regarding shortages, emergency room closures, because it's important. And you know the deal, whether it be the family doctor, the registered nurse, the licensed practical nurse, the nurse practitioner, pharmacist, social worker, everyone inside the delivery world. Because that's all part of the conversation. And, you know, we talked last week about the province says they are looking at the scope of practice for pharmacists in particular when they need to look at it for all healthcare professionals to try to ease the pain and ease the burden. Paramedics don't get lumped in there often enough. You know, for the longest while, we were talking about paramedics because it was the, the communities that lost their ambulance and then, of course, the disparity between the publicly operated paramedic system and the privately operated system, the amount of time required and on call and the rate of pay. We've lost paramedics out of the system. Then you add into it the red alerts where someone calls for an ambulance, and it should not be for that purpose, as Pat described. Uh, people call for an ambulance, and there's none available. Uh, while you might have a lineup of ambulances, say, for instance, at the healthcare, uh, health sciences center, offloading their patient, willing to transfer the liability of one patient, or what's the right way to say that, to transfer the patient for the oversight, the auspices of the emergency room staff versus the paramedics themselves so they can back in their bus and be available for the next 911 call. So, yeah, the paramedics' is, uh, situation is dire. There's a couple of them, they are in constant contact with us, and they sign it off in similar form. It's either a concerned paramedic or frustrated paramedic, and we know that we've lost a ton of paramedics to elsewhere in the country. So absolutely, we can throw that in. Also with 811. So this person reports this morning that had a telephone appointment, I'll read the email, we'll leave the names out, had a telephone appointment with 811 this morning at 8 a.m., uh, no call. Waited until 9 and then called 811 to ask what the problem was. Notes indicated that 811 went straight to voicemail. No call and have a call waiting there was, if there was any usage issue. Asked to lodge a complaint, put on hold for 17 minutes and the call was dropped, called back, da 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 Presently on hold for 35 minutes. So again, 811 has been very helpful. Sure, certainly it has. And, of course, now the mental health crisis line has been folded into 811, which gives some people some pause for concern. But if you have those types of experience and want to paint the picture of how you're dealing with what you're dealing with, please do. And, you know, we mentioned that Eastern Health, that Sinclair's and the Health Sciences Center said, don't come. And that was on the long weekend. Don't come over unless it's an absolute emergency. That's fine, but factor in the communities that have seen repeated closures uh, in their emergency rooms or complete closures, like, for instance, in Whitburn, where they're about 10, 11 weeks now with their emergency room closed. We're also talking about some industrial and commercial uh, job sites in and around Whitburn. That's where do people go? So it's obviously a massive concern. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, it's uh, up to you about what we're talking about. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Uh, Okay. I find it interesting sometimes when I'm asked why we don't cover one thing or another. It's important to point out that we can cover whatever you like. It doesn't matter to me. I mean, the topic is completely up to you, as I say repeatedly and almost ad nauseum. Whatever the subject matter is, there's nothing too big, nothing too small. The one issue that this particular emailer is concerned with why we have not covered it was the expense associated with the renovations at the Colonial Building. You know, the reference inside the email was very specific about some of the needs of the day, which there are several. We all know them. We talk about them all the time. Whether or not the timing makes any sense, given the needs that are prevalent in society. Whether there would have been better support throughout the pandemic. But, of course, the monies put aside and the plans to the renovate the colonial building go back years. 
I mean, Sandy Collins was the minister responsible when the monies first went out the door. And, you know, for me, the biggest part of the story initially was why they cut down all those trees. Beautiful trees, beautiful setting, just to restore it to its outdoor look and feel as they try to renovate the legislature and the different rooms inside. Now, it costs about $21.4 or $5 million. Nothing to sneeze at. So the schools of thought are quite clear that preservation of history, because we talk about heritage and preservation, because if you don't, before you know it, it's gone. So I think there's an argument to be made for preserving places like the Colonial Building, I haven't been inside. I haven't had the tour yet. I saw some of the pictures. It looks pretty grand. And there's lots of history associated with that building, Richard Squires and all the rest of it. You know, can it indeed be a revenue generator? Like when you travel anywhere else in this world, some of these types of historical settings, they make a fair buck. Like, I mean, just yesterday, how many people watched what went on inside Westminster Abbey? You try to go to do some of these tourist types of things in other cities in the world, and you pay. Nothing's free. And lining up for some things that are maybe not even that interesting can come with a pretty heavy price tag. But people are looking for something to do when they're on holidays. I think same thing with the locals. There'll be lots of people interested to go in and have a look at it. Now, does that mean that it's the wisest spend of $21.5 million this day and age? Not really. But, you know, we look at things in a zero-sum game, right? Is how many people are hungry versus why would we restore that in a $135,000 stool or couch or whatever the thing is, which is kind of a weird color. So we can talk about these issues. If I don't bring it up, doesn't mean you can't, right? It's the same thing where now there's a lot of people, and these are generally well-coordinated and choreographed campaigns to pepper me with the same messages about why am I not talking about one popular hashtag or another? Because I'm a bit too serious for that. I mean, we don't talk about one hashtag or another for the obvious reasons. Number one, they're endless. Number two, kind of who cares? Because if you have a position that is about the prime minister or anything else, you can always just make that point. You know, why won't I promote one hashtag or another? Because I don't, I don't even remember the last time I, that I included a hashtag in something I wrote. So, yeah, there's lots of things that trend. Are they part of the public conversation? They certainly can be on social media. They probably can be on this program with a call or what have you. But I haven't promoted any of them. You know, maybe some of the fundamentals about maybe some minor sports or what have you. That's no problem. But I haven't been on one side of the social media coin or another in promoting some of the hashtags that are simply about displeasure, dislike, or hatred, or adoration for one politician or another, one political party or another, one issue or another on that front because... I don't know. I don't have the brain power to go through some of those efforts. And so it doesn't mean I'm dismissing it. It just means that how am I supposed to talk about some of these things on Twitter and whatever hashtag is popular? Because depends on what side of the political coin you're on, it would be... I mean, I think it's incumbent on you to bring your perspective for whether it be, like, for instance, why didn't I cover X? It was also asked to me today, why didn't I speak about the prime minister and the five-second video of him singing in a piano bar on a Saturday night in London? Well, I don't know what people, you know, have been told it's the most embarrassing thing to ever happen to a Canada and to a Canadian prime minister. Really? So... I don't know what we expect from people, whether it be just sullen, somber, solitude, uh, even if you're in London for these types of affairs. And remember, you've probably never been to an Irish wake here in this province or anywhere in the UK. Because if we're also talking about celebration of life, which was part of the big conversation regarding Queen Elizabeth II, of course, there's a very somber effect on Monday and some of the viewings over the past 10 days. I totally get it. But why are we talking about it? Because 
you know, I've tried to pick up on issues that are obviously really important to thousands and millions of Canadians. And if that one's important to you, you can call the show and talk about it. But I didn't think it was a big deal. I stay away from social media a fair bit on the weekend. I knew full well this would be a huge, big deal in some corners, is that someone sang at a bar. The Prime Minister sang at a bar on a Saturday night in London, England. Let's go to line number one. June, you're on the air. Oh, hi, Petty. How are you? Not bad today. How about you? I was driving out uh, from um, Mount Pearl, and I came, came off Kilbride there and came off to the top where you, you get that four-way light. And a fella picked up. It's right on the corner on the grass. It looks like a big, uh, like a big um, lot of uh, siding, gray siding is taped together. Someone must have lost it off a truck. But it's on the grass there when you're coming up to your lift from Kilbride, if anybody lost it. And it's all new. So I was just letting you know that, that you can put it out there if somebody lost it. Yeah, you just put it out there. Guaranteed that just slipped off the back of the truck. Uh, yeah, and it's new, like I said, and it's expensive. So, But can I touch on one more thing I just heard you talk about? Absolutely, go ahead. About Premier Furry singing at karaoke. The Prime Minister, yeah. The Prime Minister. Oh, Prime Minister, sorry about that, honey. Um, but the part is people got nothing better to do. The man went up, paid his respects for Canada, for Newfoundland, and the part is, if he was singing that karaoke, I lived in uh, Norway for a couple of years. People do it all the time down here. It doesn't mean he didn't re- disrespect the Queen. He went out and he also enjoyed his little bit of time up there. So I don't think there's nothing wrong with it. He's human. And like I said, he didn't disrespect nobody. He didn't show no disrespect. So you know something? People got to stop picking on the little things in life and not so things aren't that important. So I just want to put it out there. I, think, I don't think he done anything wrong. I appreciate you know, this, June, and hopefully someone... this time. Yeah, and hopefully right? someone can retrieve their siding. Thanks for the heads up. Thank you, my doll. You're Thank welcome. You. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And, I mean, feel free to tell me that you think I'm carrying someone's water, which, of course, is complete and utter nonsense. I just don't think some of these things are really all that important. Like, if I, honest to God, if that had to be anybody, any politician from this country, I would feel the exact same way. Had that been Mr. Poliev or Mr. Singh or anybody in any of the parties, Elizabeth May, whoever, and they were caught on video doing that, I just really don't think I would care. Now... Can it be construed as absolute disrespect? I suppose if that's how you feel about it, that's how you feel about it. And, of course, sending us links for things that are from some of the British... I mean, the British press, I don't know if you follow along with how the press covers anything, especially the monarchy and matters of public policy in the UK. It's madness. It is absolute madness. In large part, they're all very much tabloid-style periodicals and for broadsheets. So if you think it was a big deal, fair enough. Do you think the members of the royal family think it was a big deal? I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not a member of the royals, obviously, no blue blood here. So if it's a big deal in some corners, I just think that we've arrived at that point where regardless of what it is, uh, Mr. Poliev and his piece of wood, who cares? You know, we've got so many fish that are so enormous, we can't fit them in the largest frying pan available in this province or any province or territory across the country. If those are things that are of import to you, so be it. I just don't view them as that big a deal. Like, same thing when we talk about going to the stampede and put on cowboy hat stuff. When in Rome, who cares? They all do it. For me, it looks a little bit too goofy for me to want to engage in. If I was one leader or another going to those things, I don't feel the need. And you know who else doesn't care about it? The folks in Calgary. (laughs) 
The folks in Calgary, they would not be put off if someone came to town, some quote-unquote Laurentian elite or some townie or bayman from this province who was leading a national party came to town, went to the stampede and didn't wear a cowboy hat. No one cares. They just don't, right? In a normal course of business in the city of Calgary, haven't been there many, many times in my lifetime, people don't wear cowboy hats all day long every day. You know who does? Cowboys. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, plenty of time to speak with you about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM Morning Show. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one, say good morning to the mayor, St. Vincent, St. Stevens, and Peters River. That's Verna Hayward. Good morning, Mayor Hayward. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you for affording me the opportunity again to speak to you. I'm calling about the uh, breakwater at St. Vincent's Beach. Mm -hmm. As you know, Larry uh, destroyed uh, most all of the breakwater. What's still standing now is what I would term to be like toothpicks. Um, It's an eyesore as well, and the TI has uh, refused to clean it up. Uh, They're looking for council to do a 90-10. Uh, when it's technically a public road, it's a provincial uh, road. And uh, we're just wondering, in light of all the hurricanes, we, we were spared a rural. I'm not sure what this one might do to us on the weekend. Uh, but uh, we would like to have a permanent fix on that beach. And, uh, I mean, we pressured the government in the spring to come clean it up, uh, uh, and nothing happened. So even in the wintertime, it'll be dangerous with whiteouts. And um, so that's all I'm calling on TI, Minister Lovelace, to uh, take another look and uh, get moving and get our breakwater replaced. Because last time when it was, Larry, the residents of St. Stephen's and Peters River were uh, isolated for two or three days. Children couldn't get to school. And we know, I'm sure, uh, like everybody knows, the ambulance situation with Trapassi. Uh, one ambulance, and most of the time the ambulances from St. Mary's are required to go out that way to St. Charles, Trapassi, Portugal Cove, and, uh, you know, get patients. So we're pretty isolated. And uh, yes, I know they have the opportunity to go down the southern shore, but in the wintertime that can be a dangerous drive or in, in the height of a, a hurricane. So uh, we'd just like them to take a second look at it and come in and see what uh, they can do. Uh, what they're saying to us, uh, the message we're getting back from uh, uh, the government is that it's cheaper to replace the pavement than it is to replace the breakwater, which, yes, that might make sense. But, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, we feel it's very important that it should be replaced. Well, uh, you know, to do that cost-benefit analysis, that it's cheaper to replace the pavement, but you're also talking about the potential to cut off one side of the harbour or the bay from another. Exactly. I mean, if anyone's been through St. Vincent's, there's portions of that highway where it's so quite easily washed out and that could be prolonged so it might be one thing to repair the pavement but what happens if like I think you rightfully point out the ambulance for St. Mary's has to make it to O'Donnell's and can't so uh, no it wouldn't be O'Donnell's yeah that, well no it wouldn't be O'Donnell's to be going to St. Shots or Trapassi okay fair enough yeah yes like there's only one ambulance and that's terrible that there's only one ambulance left in the Trapassi area that should never ever be uh, with aging population that we have but what I'm saying is that section like St. Stephen's Peters River will, could be closed off for days like they were last time plus the fact of the one ambulance to serve 
I, I like that section, Peter Driver, St. Stephen's and St. Chatch to Passy, Portugal Cove. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, fair enough. You know, so it's very important. We have an aging population, and an I- the Irish Loop is so travelled. What an eyesore! Like it was, it's even dangerous because there's stumps left. And uh, like we, as a council, like we we even tried to uh, cut the stumps, but I mean it's an impossible task. It has to be done with uh, excavation. And it's dangerous for people watching the whales or just trying to access the beach to stumble over some of the low stumps that are left. But, like, that's just like two picks. I mean, if the wind and rain is in there the weekend, I mean, like, no sweat, that can be just gone. And, uh, you know, but not only that, like, in the wintertime, it's dangerous in white conditions. And, uh, the, you know, the, the breakwater acted as, as it did, a breakwater. So I don't know, like, I'm sure there must be something that they can come up with that would, you know, be put there meant to last. This has lasted, like, 40 years or so. So, I mean, I don't know. Like, that will be up to the engineers to do this. But I really think that something needs to happen soon. Fair enough. Um, We've seen how the storms can be pretty severe and a little bit more frequent than communities are used to in years past. We learned a lot of tough lessons uh, in the last... 10 or 12 years regarding storms number one being Igor we figured out quite clearly that we weren't using uh, culverts that were near big enough to handle the amount of water that we'll see in those types of events and I think if it hadn't been for expanding some of those culverts I'll say for instance up on the Bonavista Peninsula we would have had the same type of outcome with washouts and roads completely crumbled by the force of some of those storms and the amount of water dumped if we hadn't increased the size of the culverts so I think the similar conversation and thought needs to be applied to the breakwaters uh Anything else this morning, uh, Verna? Or pardon uh, me, Mayor Hayward? Well, I'm just con- uh, I, there's rumors, and I don't know. Uh, as you and I both know, the Irish Loop is the most travelled loop in the province. I mean, even to, to even now, and the tourist season is coming to a close. Uh, we, I still see campers. I still see motorcycles uh, doing the whole loop every day. Um, there's rumours that uh, the Irish Loop is going to be completed with new fresh pavement. Uh, I did see surveying happening on Trapassi Road near Hickey's Hill. Uh, there are some markings on Peter's River Road. Uh, I just really hope that that's in the works. Uh, Peter's River Road is deplorable. Uh, I'm uh, steady contacting the local uh, highway depot to see if they're going to finish with the patching. They started it and stopped. Uh, How this happens, I don't know. Like even this summer, they started St. Shots Road and just stopped and went somewhere else. And we had like upwards of over 500 people come to our come home here and the road was already fit to drive over. And when all of us come home here was over in late August, they decide to finish it. So like, I don't know what the rationale is. And the same way with Peter's River Road, some of it's patched and a lot of it is so deplorable. Traffic is going to the left, you're going to the right, you're driving in the middle of the road. Uh, if it doesn't get finished, it's going to be in heart shape for the winter. And, I mean, there's still lots of traffic going through. So I really hope that uh, that the government seriously finishes it. It's done as far as Portugal Coast South now. It needs to get picked up in Biscay Bay and get a good road. Like, I would like to know the stats and how many visited Mistaken Point, how many visited Cape Race. Like, I know there's thousands that were at our beach. And even on Monday, yesterday being a holiday, there was cars at our beach yesterday. 
So the tourists are going through the Irish Loop, and we have no way of clocking how many cars there are, but it would be really good to see the road right through the Irish Loop completed with good pavement. Appreciate the time this morning. Thank you very much. Thank you. Take care, Mary, yes. Mary Hayward. Bye-bye. Right, bye-bye. It's uh, Vernon Hayward, the Mayor of St. Vincent, St. Stephen's, and Peter's River. All right. Oh, maybe I should have broached this with her because there was big stories last week surrounding the sell-off of the assets owned by the Roman Catholic Episcopal Corporation. You're all familiar with the story. So there was, you know, the world for Catholics uh, and the, the congregants in the St. Mary's Bay Area. That's really changed. And same thing around here. So th- I think the stories would be very similar. Now, there's big questions being asked, for instance, for the folks down in Marystown and St. Gabriel's Hall. But just how the Episcopal Corporation thinks they own it to the extent where they can sell it. No one disagrees with reparations or compensation for the victims of Mount Cashel. But just this past sat- uh, Sunday, the last masses ever were held at St. Agnes's in Pooch Cove and St. Pius X here in, here in town. And, of course, that Pius X not only went to the school, but I've probably been to more masses at St. Pius X than any other church anywhere in the world. Not that I feel a great sense of loss, but I, because I'm not a, uh, a frequent parishioner these days. But for folks who are, you know, I don't think we should be dismissing their concerns because they make the key point here. Through no fault of their own, as contributors financially in particular, to the ongoing upkeep and maintenance of these churches for the sins of the crowd at Mount Cashel and for the lack of money or equity at the corporation and or the absence of the Vatican, they pay the price. Now, it's easy enough to say that religion's wherever you are, and there's a lot of truth to that, but there is part of the community attached to and associated with going to the church. So those two in particular, I don't know how long Pius has been around, probably... Uh, sometime in the late 60s or sometime in the 70s, maybe, day for the church. I know the school was uh, back in the late 60s, the boys' school, that is. But those churches are now gone insofar as their operations that have been there for decades in both of those communities. It's also, of course, every time this uh, comes to pass, and we'll talk about minimum wage. So there's a minimum wage hike coming at the end of this month. It's always been a conversation that has nothing but absolutes. It's either a good thing or a bad thing, as opposed to the extension that's required here. You know, whether or not you think that a minimum wage is intended to be a living wage, as opposed to a stepping stone to more money, different position in one company or another, which I think is fairly accurate. But so at this moment in time, when the increase comes to pass at 50 cents, that's the one that's coming on October 1st, it'll be 13.70 an hour. By, the, by October of 2023, it'll be up to $15. But of course, the energy in the campaign into the 15 and fairness, that's years old. So by the time it does hit it in October 23, that $15 is not the $15 that they were talking about when they first launched those campaign years ago. So that's part of it. So, you know, like I say, if you are part of the 15 and fairness campaign or other social advocacy groups, it's never enough and it's not fast enough. If you're a member of whether it be the Employers Council or other business groups, then of course it's too much too quick. How do you look at these issues with enough money in people's pockets to be able to keep the wolf away from the door? There will always be some out there who say that any additional dollar comes in the door, people will spend it on beer, smokes, and drugs and alcohol. Well, I don't think that's necessarily fair. But how do you make sure that the money, whether it be in the child tax benefit or bumping wage or GST bump or anything, gets to help cover some of the bills? 
and this is not to be stereotypical, uh, mean or harsh, directed at one socioeconomic group or another. It's just the reality of conversations that we have to have. There has been consensus in the House of Assembly here to have a look at, a committee to have a comprehensive look at what it means to have a living wage or a guaranteed basic income, whatever you want to refer to it as. And there's lots of ways to put incentives in, so you're not incentivizing lazy, you're incentivizing actually working or doing something to justify the check that comes out the door. It does have to be uh, joined with harm reduction policies because we do indeed in this country, not just in this province, in this country, have issues with some of the vices. And you know it to be true, all the way to the most serious ones regarding opioids and the amount of excessive opioid-related deaths that we see across the country. Okay, so you want to take on the minimum wage bit, we can do it. Folks in Labrador who are a little bit frustrated about the fact that the Mike Adams, uh, the Mike Adams Center, the recreational facility, was opened up for a mining conference. Uh, was it in the Wabush Rec Center? Yeah, right? Yeah, Labwest, Wabush Rec Center. It was opened up for a mining conference, but remains closed to the population at large. Okay. I mean, you're in the region, so you know how it feels to not have access uh, to these facilities, including the, the rec center. You know, I'm sure some of the community, especially part of the business community, would welcome the visitors and the money that they spend, whether it be in a hotel or the restaurants or whatever the case may be. But the ongoing concern for the rest of the year when there it sits, and it's not that old, and it's certainly usable, and the doors are closed. So I get that concern, but there's just one of the further examples of cooperation or collaboration, the so-called regionalization. Between uh, Lab City and Wabush, they should be able to come up with an idea for some cost sharing, even though one community is a bit obstinate on this one, come up with an idea to cost share because members of both communities use the rec center, so why not have the money there for the rec center? because there's a huge benefit to both communities for access to that facility. So we can take on that or anything similar to that or anything else when we come back from this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the... <clears throat> one sec. Now, welcome back to the program. So the question coming from the listener is, you know, here comes the fall-winter season. And consequently, more opportunity for colds and flus and maybe some COVID because it's not gone away as much as many people, including me, are tired of it. Just because we're tired of it doesn't mean it's gone. So the concept, you know, like we talked with Tom earlier about the day of mourning and what that meant for so many people having the day off and not everyone had the day off, which is, you know, there's a disjoint there and what the cost may be associated with it. But then there's lots of conversation about 10 sick days. Now, I think they had negotiated a pretty good deal on that front for the Mount Pearl striking workers, but on the federal scene, not because uh, this is not an effort to support or condemn it, but it's just actually what's happening, is the, there was an amendment to the criminal code and the labor code back in July before the sitting uh, was, before they stood and left the house for the summer season. So it's coming, not only for 10, ba 10 days of paid sick leave for federal government employees, but also for people who work for a federally regulated industry, the so-called bank holidays. And there's a bunch of different industries that fall into that. Air transportation, so that's all the airlines and the airports themselves. Banks, including authorized actual uh, other banks from other countries that are operating here. They get the holiday too, which is always quite strange. 
uh, everything in the, in the farming industry, whether it be the grain elevators, the feed, and all those types of things, so warehouses, anything associated with that, all the First Nations bands, uh, the Crown Corps, Canada Post, for instance, gets that particular uh, holiday. Then everything to do in the shipping world. Ferries and tunnels, canals, bridges, shipping, they get the federally regulated industry holiday as well. Railways, which of course doesn't really count for us, even though there is some rail in Labrador couriers, telecommunications. That's all examples of the federally regulated industry uh, controlled by the federal government. Consequently, when this passes in the House, now, well, it received royal assent. The issue now is that it goes to some level of consultation. For what reason, I'm not really sure. Then it has to be finally published in the Canada Gazette. The current proposal is set to be enforced on the 1st of December of this year for the 10 sick days. And that sounds pretty generous, in my own opinion. I don't even know how many sick days we get here. To be honest, Dave, do we have a a set number, or what is it? Uh, I don't see a lot of people using a lot of sick days here anyway, but anyway, that's the update on that front, so for folks who are interested. And, you know, sometimes people hear what they want to hear, and this is a reference to the labeling for Newfoundland and Labrador lobster and snow crab. You know, I've been told that the concerns of folks who are worried about the Atlantic right whale are real. No one said they weren't. The issue here is quite clear. So there's a group called the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch Program. They look at the the quote-unquote science, and they make recommendations based on science about seafood products and how they should be labeled. In this case, they've suggested that snow crab and lobster from here be labeled as something to avoid. Why? Not because of nutritional content, not about whether or not it's good for you, because of the implications of the Atlantic, the Atlantic right whale. The problem there is that it's not necessarily based in reality for what happens in our waters. The sightings of the Atlantic right whale are fairly rare around here, especially in the seasons for fishing lobster and snow crab. On top of the sightings that have been reported, there have been absolutely zero entanglements. So if we are trying to make measures with slowing down vessels as they travel through some of the migratory routes of the Atlantic right whale, okay. If we're talking about gear that needs to be changed and a new process is adopted because of potential entanglements with one species or another, okay. But it hasn't happened here. So it's an unfair tag, totally unfounded, to apply to those two shellfish products coming out of our waters. If there had been right uh, Atlantic whale, Atlantic right whale entanglements here, then they'd be right to say, well, they would suggest that you avoid it because of the problem or the persistence of the problem. But if it's not a real thing here, then why are we applying that tag? The FFAW is speaking out about it, as they should. The provincial government is actually outside with the union in this case, trying to hope that this group, which is taken very seriously, and the recommendations are generally adopted so far as of what I've read. So it's probably really important for the folks down in Monterey Bay to get this one right. Because right now, they got it all wrong. Uh, Okay, let's take a break for the newscast. When we come back, still a ton of show left to speak with you on a topic of your choosing. If you've heard it brought up this morning, you'd like to elaborate or to pick up on one point or another, mate, do that. You want to bring forward a new topic for discussion? Please do that as well. Don't go away. You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed. Get up to date on the way home. The Drive on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number one. Caller, you're on the air. Good day, Mr. Daly. Good day to you. I want to mention something. If if it's wrong, I apologize, but I want you to confirm. It wasn't. Uh, I really hear. I'm watching uh, Mr. Trudeau yesterday. Is it really true that he's going to give the twenty million dollars for Queen's uh, 
uh, scholarship, $20 million. I don't know. But I'm sure I heard it on, on, when, he, when he was out, out, out there yesterday. Going to give, give the $20 million towards a clean scholarship. Or is it something that's going to be designated as a scholarship here in this country? Okay, so here it is. I just popped it up because I, I didn't pay a whole lot of attention to all of it yesterday, just a little bit. Canada is actually, yes, it says, the plan is the Prime Minister honours the legacy of Her Majesty the Queen. It says, to honour Her Majesty's lifelong commitment to duty and service, the Prime Minister announced that Canada will donate $20 million to the Queen Elizabeth Scholars Program, which provides funding for university exchange projects that gives Canadian students the opportunity to study abroad and attract top talent. Okay, there you go. Yeah, under twenty million dollars, we we could certainly use some of that with our dental plan. So uh, that's what I'm going to touch on in the dental plan. Okay. Uh, like I say, like I say, they're going to start from uh, families with less than ninety thousand dollars, low income. They're considered that as low income. Here we are, for the last four or five years, I've been fighting myself for to get some dental care, and uh, and they're starting off with the low income. I know. Um, Mr. Singh said himself, anybody less than ninety thousand dollars. That's the first one that's going to be in the top of the line. That's a that's a bit hard to take in. And it's only for folks under the age of thirteen at this point. Yes. Yeah. But uh, yeah. But uh, making uh, making less than ninety thousand dollars. Okay. You know, and here we are with the low income, eighteen thousand, twenty thousand, thirty thousand dollars, and we got to wait probably to two thousand twenty three here. I met the process probably getting two two pools going to cost me eight hundred dollars as a senior citizen. Right. So, so it's is a good thing or bad thing? Like the dental care announcement made by the federal government had very little impact in this province period because we actually have a fairly robust dental care plan for folks twelve years of age and under. So it really doesn't mean a whole lot here. No, but certainly no. Like us seniors, like you say, when he took it away, uh, when. Uh, his own self took away, Mr. Ball took away in 2016 when he formed the government. Uh, we had a program on the Newfoundland Labrador Christian program, but I'm, you know, there has been no move in that at all. And, you know, dental is a big part of our hygiene, but it seems like, uh, no, you ought to, if, you want, if you want an extraction, go and pay it out of your own pocket. You want your teeth clean, go and pay it out of your own pocket. Yeah. Now, some people have private insurance that covers some of the very basics that we, people might go to the dentist for, but not everybody does. That's absolutely true. There are different dental programs based on whether you're a senior or an income support recipient and those types of things here in the province at this moment in time. But things like extractions are going to cost a lot of Canadians out of pocket. You know, the whole bit about universal health care. And it does not, and this should be a national conversation about what role dental care plays in it. I think it's quite clear. I think it was Jack Harris, as a matter of fact, put forward a, a private member's bill in the House of Commons to have dental care included in overall universal health care. Well, nothing's free in this world. I don't call it free health care because it's not free, but inside the world of universal health. The understanding of what dental health means to your overall health is patently clear crystal clear. That does not mean we should be uh, offering people the opportunity to go to the dentist and get veneers. That's not what it's intended for. It's intended for dental work that's required for your ability to eat, to produce pain, the relationship between your dental health and dementia, all these things which people know about, but still we, we fight about it. We're going to be another at least a couple of years before the dental care program is expanded to all. That's right. You're absolutely right. Yeah, well, my point is a bit too long, so I think I've said enough today, Mr. Daly. Thank you for your time. I appreciate yours.
Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. You know, the dental care conversation, I think, is a good one. You know, and of course, everything costs money. Of course it does. I think in the world of health, we'll talk about it under a few veins, whether it be pain, number one, and then what it might contribute to for your overall health. Don't take it from me. Take it from the medical community. It talks about where dental health falls into your overall health. It's important. It really, truly is. So when we have to move beyond what it means to the individual and their pain management, what have you, yes, people can, and we should be talking about what things cost. Now, we know quite clearly that it's not just a matter of money in healthcare because we spend lots of money on healthcare in this country and in province to province. Outcomes are not where they need to be. So it can't be all about money. If the relationship between your dental health and other complicating factors for your overall health have been researched, understood, peer-reviewed, published in medical journals across the world, then how do we factor that into the, uh, to the cost analysis, the cost-benefit analysis? If it's about, and it's not just about appearance and your self-confidence and stuff, it's hard to put a price tag on that stuff. But when we talk about the numbers that are forecasted regarding uh, dementia and Alzheimer's, uh, cardiovascular issues, people's ability to eat, normal healthy foods where some chewing is required, that's real. It's 100% real. So I know Canadians are looking at big debts and deficits and wondering how we're going to pay all these bills and leaving this generational or multi-generational debt behind. The reality is, you know, when we talk about modernized first world nations, there are, you know, some of the measures that are done, net debt to GDP and or job creation and the like. So we're not in horrible shape as much as the numbers are just massive because most sovereign nations took on some pretty significant debt load over the last two and a half to three years. But dental health, it's, it's okay. But here's the one where I just cannot figure out exactly what we think governments should or should not be doing. If we're talking about is it a good idea for the $500 one-time payment for the Canada housing benefit for low-income renters, or is it a good idea for singles and parents of uh, families and seniors to get a bump on their GST, and of course there's an earning threshold associated with it, how do you make sure people can afford stuff? If the government goes to the other side, the supply side, and tries to influence it, like they did in this province, with, and it wasn't an affordability issue, it was a so-called healthcare issue with tax on a sugary drink. But how do you make things that people need, the sustenance of life, the necessities in the grocery store, more, or less, pardon me, less expensive? How does that even work? It's easy enough for governments to come up with plans to put more money in your hands, more money in your pocket, but how do you get to the price tag issue? If we try to take that on, I'm not saying it can't be done, I just can't really quite figure it out. If you have good ideas on that front, let's talk about it. Because then government clearly is picking winners and losers, clearly. One thing to apply a tax to whatever someone deems to be as bad for you, quite another to try to make an affordability issue. You know, milk. I mean, twice this year there's been a bump based on the Dairy Commission. Of course, all managed by supply management, so probably not the greatest example, but twice it's gone up this year. Once two cents per liter, so four cents per two liter. Uh, earlier in the year, I believe it was in February, it went up six cents. But whether it be the fundamentals, you know, meats and vegetables and produce, fruit, how do we attack that? I just don't know. You know, you'll ask people who are working in the food security advocacy groups, and they say more money in people's pockets makes it easier for people to get food. Yeah, sure, but it doesn't mean that every additional dollar coming in the door will go to those types of things. So it's a price point issue. 
and again, you know, some people saying, boy, uh, must be nice to be able to curse out a Sobeys executive. I didn't curse anybody out. But they're bemoaning the fact that Canadians are thinking about, you know, interruptions in, in global supply chains. And yes, the increased costs for farmers. And yes, the increased costs of diesel. All the while, the grocery stores, when we talk about just uh, revenues and profits, are doing pretty well. And they're frustrated. The CEO at Sobeys is quite cross with us for daring to talk about the impact of these simple prices in the grocery store. And how can we not also focus on that? You know, but how does government look at the price point? How do you deal with point of sale? More money sounds right, but how do you really make everything or the most important things, the necessities, less expensive? That's where if you have an idea that we can broach and delve into, I'm happy to do it. Let's go ahead and take a break. We'll make it back. It's up to you. Don't go away. And welcome back. Let's go to line number three. Rob, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you making it by? Great today. How are you doing? Oh, not so bad, not so bad. No, I just wanted to bring it up. Like, you know, the, the government's all good and well, to, you know, giving out money and, and all this stuff to help everybody out and all this stuff and that. But if they get the hands out of our pockets and stop taking the taxes every time we turn around, um, we could do well enough with our own money instead of them making money off of our money. Sure. Um, you know, taxation is a funny conversation anyway, isn't it? You know, we do indeed have what people refer to as a progressive taxation scheme that's in place. I think there's always room to talk about the highest earners and corporations. There's been international agreements regarding corporate tax, but, you know, how does government pay for anything? Well, because we're running big, big deficits and massive big debt. Cutting taxes leads to cutting services. At this moment in time, there's just no argument can be made otherwise because the numbers are, are what the numbers are. If we cut tax, we cut somewhere else. So how do, how do you weigh that up in your own mind? It, 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 it just it doesn't make a lot of sense to me that they can sit there and put a tax on a tax on a tax and then, you know, sit there and, and you know, and make us feel good by giving us a, a rebate on GST and all that stuff. We'll get rid of the goddamn GST. And, you know, we'll pay our own way. We'd have money in our pockets instead of giving it all out. Look, no one argues with more money is a good thing, less tax is a good thing, but the reality is simply just based on math and not political ideology is less money coming in, municipally, provincially, or federally. Well, I guess the municipal is not a real good example because they have legislative requirement to deliver a balanced budget, but provincially and federally, any less revenue coming in has to give somewhere else. No matter how we slice it, no matter what your leanings are politically, less money means something loses somewhere else. A service or a job or something. Not to say that there's a bad thing with maybe seeing whether or not we have too many people working for us, but that's the reality, isn't it? Because we're all running deficits. Yes, okay, but like, how, how can the government be so... I don't know the word... But, like, they can sit there and be pompous and give themselves a raise on our money when they know they're running, we're running deep into debt. It's, it's just an oxymoron to me. Yeah, politicians, it must be a, a cozy place to live when you get to evaluate your own rate of pay. You can vote unilaterally on giving yourself a raise. That's always a pretty uncomfortable uh, setting. Rob, you mentioned tax on tax on tax. Was that about one product in particular? Because people talk about that when, as it pertains to gasoline, for instance. It's, it's, it's on multiple things. Like, like you said, gasoline, yes. Um, even on food, now, now with this sugar tax. 
Yeah. Now, there's that, that's a tax on tax. Yeah, okay, because it's a prepared good. Yeah, fair enough. Yes. So it's like, like they're supposed to be working for us, but it, it, it almost seems like it's a regime where they're trying to, I don't know, get people peed off. Uh, feel free to uh, disregard this question if you are so inclined. Do you identify, like, for instance, as a libertarian? No. Okay, because I've never really I, understood I, how that works. I have no uh, governmental position, really. Okay. Yeah, my only summary point on those issues is, and it's not because I would vote one way or the other, is if we are running deficits, which we are, if you cut any stream of revenue, whether it be from an oil royalty or a mining royalty or a tax dollar, at some point, one dollar reduced means you have to cut a dollar somewhere else. Whatever that means. If it's people lose their job or there is a service that would be eroded, because we're not talking about one dollar, we're talking about millions of dollars and billions of dollars. So that's the only point there. We've got ourselves in a spot where we are absolutely slave to tax dollars because governments have run up such a massive bill. Yeah. And, and and that's the whole problem is because, you know, it, it's all fallen on us, but they're they're not helping, they're not really helping us out very much, you know, by giving back tax dollars that they've taken from us, um, you know, it, they're just recycling our money, but they're making money off of our money to give themselves a raise. <laughs> Fair enough. You know, I, I, it's, it's just it's frustrating to hear it every day. You know, the government. Oh yeah, no, they're giving twenty billion dollars out for this, and they're giving billion dollars out for this, and and stuff like that. And we're sitting here, you know, barely able to get toilet paper. What also factors in there, just from my perspective, Rob, is we throw around numbers like they're really easy to understand. Billion is a lot. Like, I don't know how, you know, it's, in context is important, right? When I was young, it felt like a million dollars was a lot. Now, a billion dollars is a lot, but how big is a billion dollars? Uh, for if you had a million seconds, it's 12 days. If you had a billion seconds, it's like 34 years. So we talk about numbers like they're sort of, well, whatever, you know, 20 billion for that, 2 billion for this, 2 billion for that. That's a lot of cash. Now, how it gets spent, that's the massive problem with government. It's not that they have a revenue problem. They have a distribution problem. We don't do a very good job in how government spends money. No, not at all. Not at all. And you know what? You know, you're throwing out money, money stuff like that. Um, you know, for, for a lot of people, if we had an extra $5,000 in our pockets that wasn't taxed, um, people would feel real good. Yeah, I, I get it. There's a lot of feel-good to it, but at some point, I think the ultimate question has to be asked. Like, for instance, the, the new leader of the Conservative Party is talking about cutting taxes. Now, cutting taxes is also an important question is for who? You know, for yeah. who? That so-called middle class that they all covered as voters. I mean, I don't see a lot of middle class monies coming out the door. So no. uh, that's one question. And then they have to be clear. If you bring in less tax, tell me what you're going to do to accommodate. Because it's not just as simple as saying, I'm going to cut taxes, because that comes with an implication on the other side. There are two sides to the ledger, and they have to be able to address them. So those are the two questions I have about the pledge to cut taxes. Look, I'm all for paying less tax, but I want to know what that means and what that comes with, what the implications are. See, I, I think a lot of it, too, is with the, with the management of it. Um, who, Always is. Who manages this money? Like, you know, like... 
I, li- I live in a small community in, in CBS, and um, the road work and stuff like that, like, the, you know, that's that's long been on here. The, the roads are some of the worst in, in Canada. But, um, like, they're, they're repaving roads that were repaved two years ago, and there's other parts that are just absolutely deplorable. Yeah, and there's bridges to nowhere. There's all those kinds of things. You're right. There's pork and too many bills. Well, one thing, one way we can curb some of that nonsense is if we did away in full the whole concept of these omnibus bills. If it's a bill to deal with one issue, keep the pork out. Right? Just fund yep. one program, one policy, one piece of infrastructure or another. Don't lump it all in so that we have these completely unwieldy 600-page documents that are intended to deal with one thing, but the pork comes across when people just try to slick it, uh, st- uh, sneak in their constituency need or want so they can go home with a big plastic check. We just do too much of this omnibus budget stuff. It's almost impossible to wrap your mind around the kind of spend that's involved in some of these bills. Oh, yeah, and, 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 that's, and that's where our tax dollars are going. It's being spended on this overburdened system that that needs to be fixed how it to be fixed i don't know i'm not you know i'm not in that game but uh i can i can sit from the outside and see that there's just way too much red tape as they call it or whatever um but it that the system is is so broken that it just needs to be blown up and redone i appreciate the time and the and the uh, conversation this morning rob thanks a lot Okay, thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. Oh, wrong button. Let's go to this button. Let's go to line number five. Uh, Raymond, you're on the air. Yes, sir. How are you doing? Best kind today. How are you doing? Yeah, I just want a bit of information as well. The GST, we're supposed to get a raise on it. Yeah. We are. That's right. Yeah, how much, you know? Well, it depends on who you are uh, and where you are. So there's obviously an income threshold measure for people who get a GST bump. It's going to be for the time frame of six months only. So 11 million, apparently 11 million individuals uh, will receive a bump in their GST. So here's the deal with who you are, where you are. If you are a single Canadian with no children you'll get an extra, I think it's 235 bucks. If you're a couple with two children or more, you get a re- an additional, I think it's $465. Yeah, well, you, I'm a senior, I'm a Here it comes. If you're a senior, you're going to get an extra $225 on the average. We don't know if it's going to be on your October check or, as the government has said, they will receive the money by the end of the year. So it sounds to me like your October check will be what your October check would normally be. And by the end of the year, there'll be another check, for in, in your case, for $225. Bucks. Yeah. Okay, Barry, thanks very much. No problem. All the best. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Yeah, Yeah, and that's the thing. So, uh, look, I get it. You know, and the income threshold for uh, families getting this uh, dental care benefit bump, it doesn't really apply in this province, as I mentioned before. But, anyway, uh, those are the tricky things where you try to help people make ends meet, but is it more money or affordability on the other end? Because they're kind of two different things. I know that sounds like you're splitting a hair, but... Yeah. Anyway, let's take a break for the news. I think the doctor, well, I won't say her name. She was in the queue to want to talk about some of the proceedings yesterday in the day of morning. From what angle, we'll all find out at the same time. Don't go away. 
nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Dr. Francis Scully. You're on the air. Oh, good morning, Patty. Thank you for taking my call. How are you? I'm doing fine this morning. Thanks. How about good. you? Uh, good, good. And I do want to send my deepest condolences at the loss of um, beautiful Queen Elizabeth II yeah, to everybody who's been so touched by that. Yeah, yeah I wanted to say that. Uh, and I was uh, just listening to some of the uh, conversation this morning, and I totally agree. Dental health is very important. Um, and But in terms of our financial system, uh, as, as we know, since the Paris Agreement, we, I mean, internationally, $15 billion has been invested in the fossil fuel extraction industry, uh, trillion, sorry. So most of our um, collective human uh, savings are currently invested in, we, we have, you know, the, the current economic system has been built on uh, investing in and exploiting uh, the fossil fuel industries like the tar sands in Canada and so on. And switching away from that is going to be um, extraordinarily difficult. Uh, and it starts with um, how, you know, how our bankers approach this crisis. And this, this has been coming for 50 years, but uh, we haven't really uh, got into how we're going to manage this massive change in our financial system. But in the meantime, um, in terms of day-to-day life, uh, we need clean air, we need clean water, we need shelter, and we need access to good food. And um, there are, you know, we, we're talking about the price of food, and as a physician, of course, um, there's a lot of controversy about healthy nutrition and so on, but the one thing that everybody agrees about is that uh, we all benefit from eating uh, healthy, green, leafy vegetables, um, something most of us find quite difficult. <laughs> a big plate of kale is not really what... what uh, what, what I imagine, what is my favorite meal? But anyway, uh, so I, I do think when it comes to, to uh, first of all, I want to give a shout out to all the backyard farmers and all the people who are growing stuff and to the people who, who are trying to found a forest school here and trying to get O'Brien's farms going and to all our farmers, all the farmers in the province, everybody who's trying to grow. And I have the, the I, I've seen wonderful movies about the wonderful uh, gardens people had here in times gone past and all the great uh, green leafy vegetables they grew when they had to. So uh, I... Um, um, yeah, so I, I think it would be great, Paddy, if you interview some people who are involved in local food production. And, and you did mention seafood. That's incredibly important as well. Um, yeah, there's lots of things that are important. But I think, I think sure. we do need to focus on uh, healthy food production locally and how we can support that. I, I think we do. Uh, we certainly try to talk about uh, food production, security, insecurity, cost, access, proximity. You know, I, I 
bring it up quite often. I'm, you do. I'm yeah. on a one-man band about greenhouses and community gardens. You know, the homesteading thing is a, an important uh, development, and the increased numbers of people doing exactly that, and investment in community gardens, all important. But in the larger-scale farms, I mean, we've just had a big problem develop over the last few decades in this country where the mega farm has put the small farmer out of business. Exactly. So it's a real shame. If you look back at the historical numbers about how many farms were in operation in this province uh, at the date of Confederation versus today, people would be shocked, absolutely oh, shocked at the numbers. My, my grandparents on my mother's side were farmers. You Wonderful. know, Pop, Pop Neri was the biggest car producer on the Avalon Peninsula. I always loved that stat at one point when he was actively uh, farming his property down in the cove. So, right. yeah, we've got to talk about those things because it's one thing to talk about the implications of Ocean X and Marine Atlantic and the trucking business, but we only produce 10% of what we consume. There's yeah. something patently wrong or flawed with that. Yes, yes, you're, you're so right. So, I, I, And I think we have to look at all the forces uh, that have uh, forced small farmers and small producers out of, out of business and made it difficult for people to grow their own food, right? And, what, what, and most importantly, what we can do to, uh, to, to reverse this trend and do it as, uh, as, as, you know, uh, in a healthy way, um, in a happy way, you know, uh, uh, mo- moving forward. And that's um, because the, and that, that's where the forest school idea comes in, right? Yeah. I think so. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, so I, I think that's, you know, that's our money. Uh, people want to know where our money is. Our money is invested in fossil fuel production. And it's invested there because people have worked out how to make huge profits from that. And um, But in the process, something um, called the Kurzweil uh, curve has gone sky high. So we now have very toxic levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, 420 parts per million, which are not compatible long-term with life on the planet and growing anything. So we have to reinvest the money that is currently invested in fossil fuel extraction, and that's that is the uh, is, is a very difficult thing uh, thing to do. But um, one way that will put more money into small businesses is to uh, help um, grow it with local growing food, help lo- young people who want to start a farm, want to get into farming, and also helping with retrofitting homes and houses and so on to be. Um, more environmentally uh, safe and friendly. Fair enough. I appreciate the time. Did you want to say anything else about the Queen before we go? Because I know you made passing of your condolences. Oh no, just well. I mean, I, yeah, I'm very, I'm very sad, very sad because um, you know I realise that it's it's because of primogeniture, which is a horrible um, imperial idea of uh, you know the primacy of the firstborn son. Um, it's very rare to have a queen, and uh, so I, I feel that I've benefited a great deal from, um, you know, the, the long and wonderful life of Her Royal Highness. But I, I mean, I'm very, very troubled at the moment because I see Prime Minister Liz Truss as a reincarnation of Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher and uh, uh, of the Mount Pelerins and so on that Queen Elizabeth tried to mitigate. And, um, you know, it's very, very unfortunate that at this time we're facing 
Yeah, the same sort of challenges that, uh, I mean, when the Queen, when Queen Elizabeth donned her uniform to fight the Nazis, uh, I'm sure she never expected that we would be seeing um, neo-Nazis, or Nazis, pure Nazis, uh, propping it up again everywhere. It's very, very, very troubling and sad, yeah. Well, within the span of seven days, the UK had a new prime minister and a new monarch. Mm. That's really extraordinary. If you talk about what's ahead for Prime Minister Tross and for King Charles III, it's a pretty monumental task. You know, on the political side, they have an energy crisis and all sorts of unfortunate situations facing the Prime Minister. And on the monarchical side, I think King Charles has his hands full. I really do. It's going to be very difficult to stand up what has been the legacy of the Queen and whether or not he can keep the monarchy together like she did manage through very tumultuous times and whether or not the Commonwealth can be kept together because I think that's a large question. I mean, even looking African nations and Caribbean nations, many nations turning their back on the Commonwealth. So, boy, how it's going to look in the next five years compared to the last going off of Queen Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth's reign, I think it's going to be staggering. Yeah. So on a lighter note, for those who are dog lovers, because uh, the, the issues, as you say, are massive and terrifying. So, so um, um, yeah, my family, were focused on what's going to happen with the corgis, who's taking them, and the fact that... Uh, uh, King Charles has Jack Russells. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I heard someone say that uh, Princess Anne was taking the corgis. No, no, it's a, it's another one of. Uh, well, I stand to be corrected, but I know they're going to a good home. They're all dog lovers. Yeah, so there's only I a know. couple. There's only a couple of that crowd you can trust with the dogs. <laughs> no, no, I, th- I, I think that most of them are real uh, dog dog lovers, and the Queen herself, of course, was great with horses. I can't believe she was on her own horse up to was it a week ago or something I'm not sure but she did love the ponies not only just having them around Balmoral or or Windsor or what have you I think she really enjoyed going to the races as well oh yes 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 did you hear the best story I heard was the interview with the uh, with the um, the Scottish policeman and the Queen at Balmoral did you hear that story the one where she said she has a country place there and they asked her whether or not she's ever met the Queen yeah. Yeah, that's a great story. Oh, that was that's Terrific. wonderful. Yeah, yeah. yeah. She just so played along as if she wasn't find a queen. those people yeah. in the pictures, right? <laughs> Terrific. Thank you, Doctor. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great day. You Thanks. too. All right. Bye-bye. Uh, another one for the break, Dave? Yes. Let's go to line number three. Kim, you're on the air. Hi, Betty. How are you? Okay. How about you? Thanks. Listen, I work at a local supermarket here in St. John's. Yeah. And my co-workers and I are we're having a bit of a discussion about the day of national reconciliation. We're trying to figure out if it's a paid holiday for us retail workers or not. Not necessarily. It's up to your company. So it's a statutory holiday, but businesses have been given the uh, opportunity to conduct it how they see fit. Either close it as a paid day holiday and or, as they say, find other ways to commemorate the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. So it's basically up to your employer. I guess I'm working then. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Yeah, they're, you know, inside the stat world now, some industries will automatically get the holiday, but it doesn't mean the businesses are mandated to close. It's just not one of those days. Uh, let's take our final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. So the update, the factual information about who's going to take care of the Queen's corgis, Prince Andrew, apparently. Good to know. Let's go to line number one. Chris, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. Hi. Uh, I need a little help. Okay. 
I, I wrote this uh, screenplay, and I'm not sure I did it right, so I need someone to read it, but I don't know who to trust. <laughs> you don't know who to trust with it, so insofar as they might steal your idea? Uh, something like that. Yeah, I, I think there's uh, various ways you can protect yourself. So you're looking for someone to read it to see if it's in the proper format or something, or for someone to evaluate whether or not they want to make it into a movie? Uh, well, all three. What's it about? Uh, it's uh, an adaption of the Call of Cthulhu by H.P. Lovecraft. The what? About who? By who? The Call of Cthulhu. What's that? Uh, it's a giant alien priest. A giant alien priest. Hmm. Boy, oh boy. Well, there's a bunch of production companies in town. There's one place you can automatically turn, and there's a pretty comprehensive list of those. If you just go to the Newfoundland Labrador Film Development Corporation, you'll find editors and producers and film companies and production companies. You can just select from their list and see if you can establish a rapport with one or the other, see whether or not you trust them or you think that they might be a good fit for your project. But that's where I would start. i just go right to their website, see their members uh, and you know, aforementioned producers and or film production companies. That's the right person to ask to go to, I think. What was that name again? It's the uh, Newfoundland Labrador Film Development Corporation. All right. Yeah, they'll have a list of everyone involved in that business here in the province. How long were you working on your script? Uh, with the pandemic. So this is a feature film-length product? I believe so. <laughs> right on. Have you ever done anything like this before? No. Nope. First one. First one. That's cool. Listen, good on you for taking a crack at it. It's certainly not easy to produce something like that. So, uh, But let me know. I'll be curious now as to whether or not you actually got someone to look at it. You know, for some of these larger production companies, they got screenplays for shorts and docs and uh, feature film length uh, products, uh, projects coming at them all the time. So you might find someone who's willing to have a look. Let me know how you make out. Oh. Okay. Good luck. All right. Okay. Bye, Chris. That's interesting. You know, I took a crack at writing a screenplay myself in the past. It's only for a short. And uh, the basic synopsis, well, and someone's going to steal this idea because it's an awesome idea. The title was Wreck Hockey, A Love Story. <laughs> Let's go to line number two. Jerome, you're on the air. Oh, hi, Patty. Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. No problem. Uh, I just want to let you uh, give out a big thank you to uh, you and David and uh, I think there's a Christian name, I'm not sure, and BOCM, of course. Uh, Patty, uh, there's nobody here hungry today. Jerome, look, I'm really pleased, uh, and I'm glad it worked out. It was a combination of people who made it happen, and yeah. we're glad that you got some help. Well, Patty, uh, I... I almost fell to the floor. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, like I, I reiterate, there's nobody hungry today, at least that much. Uh, if I may, Patty, uh, there was a lady called, willing to help too, and uh, she wanted the e-transfer. I didn't have that, and my son has it, but he wasn't home at the time. Now, I was just wondering if that lady uh, still want to help me along. I need lots of things I need, Patty, but uh, I, I don't want to sound like a bum. Well, I tell you what, I have her contact information because she's contacted me originally, so oh. I know who that is. I'll just send her out and see if she's still in the ball game, and uh, we'll let you know. How's that work? 
Well, that works wonderful. Uh, like I say, I don't want to sound like a bum, but I need medication and I need gasoline and, you know, lots of different stuff. But I hear you. Just let me see if uh, I'll, I'll touch base with her and I'll let you know. I just, and Patty, anybody that also did help and wanted to help, a big thank you for me and my wife and family. And I'm sure people, including myself, will say you're most welcome, Jerome. Uh, I tell you right now, we're so grateful, Patty. I can't express and You just have a wonderful day, you people out in VOCN. You too, Jerome. And all the other guys, all the other people as well, of course. Yeah, I want to say thanks to Chris and Darren in particular and a couple others who are, I don't really know their name because they have uh, accounts that don't have a, a real name as, uh, attached to them, but I've thanked them all on your behalf. So those are done. God bless you, Patty. God bless you. Take care, Jerome. All right, thank okay. you, Patty. You're welcome, sir. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, always the good news. <laughs> and uh, since I made mention of the fact that there's been quite the faux outrage about the Prime Minister singing in uh, London on Saturday night, ho, 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 the messages have been coming fast and furious. And so be it. If you think it was disrespectful, fine. But, you know, sending me a clip from the Daily Mail is basically like saying, well, the National Enquirer says X, Y, or Z, because that's basically what it is. I don't know if you've ever been exposed to the British press, but they are savages, or uh, I suppose I'll get in trouble for saying that too. They're vicious, absolutely vicious with how they cover people who are public personas. Unbelievable. When we were just most recently there, picking it up to read it, it's like, oh my God, it is perpetual outrage. It must be absolutely exhausting to be one of their writers or editors because apparently it can only be mad. There can't be anything but being completely over the top, out of your mind, disgusted with one person or another, one game or another, one match or another, one referee or another, or whatever. Anyway, interesting stuff. Uh, what are we at here, Dave? You want me to talk us out? Yeah, sure, I'll give us another minute here. So, interestingly, you know, when it comes to inflationary measures, so some of the numbers I saw quickly zip by as I was trying to listen and speak with you, the caller, is that... The inflation numbers are out now and apparently been a little bit eased more than what the banks were predicting. And I, what I mean by banks is the big five. So apparently the inflation number is coming in at seven today. Now, 7% is a whopping big number. It really truly is. We're still in high water marks, you know, when compared to some 30 odd years ago. But went from eight, was it 8.1 and now to seven? Doesn't mean it's over. Doesn't mean the inflation rates will continue to decrease at this pace. It really doesn't. But it's encouraging. That's where I think some of the politicians really owe us better when we talk about inflation, as opposed to it's one person, one policy, one spend or another that is the 100% contributing factor to it. Well, we know it's not that. We know it's more than that. But so that might be some relief to some Canadians who are really looking at the inflationary numbers. But then, of course, that doesn't have an immediate impact on what me and you are going to have to try to buy or afford when we go to the grocery store today. All right, good show today. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program. And we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.